First, though, uh, some warnings from Teresa Tam, our d- Canada's top doctor, about cutting back our social interactions and the need for Canadians to do that. Well, I think um, not just myself, but other medical officers of health um, across the country are concerned with the resurgence. Uh, many uh, areas in Canada um, have uh, community transmission and with an escalation of cases. Uh, it's not the same across the whole country, but on the whole, uh, most provinces, um, except for those in the Atlantic region, are experiencing some significant uh, resurgence. That was Dr. Tam speaking earlier today on Mornings with Simi. She then held a news conference saying that Canadians need to cut back on their social interactions by about 25%. So let's bring in Jason Tetro, host of the Super Awesome Science Show, to talk a bit more about this. Jason, so great to have you back on the show. Oh, sorry, we didn't have a button press there. Jason, thanks so much for being here. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> We're off uh, to a good gr- to be joining you. great start. <laughs> <laughs> Um, talk a bit about this number, because the, the number that Dr. Tam had put out t- this morning was 25%. That's what she would like to see Canadians scale back their social interactions by. Mm-hmm. How does that work as far as picking a number and then we get the, the result that we're looking for? Well, what you're doing is you're looking at how the virus is spreading through the community. Because as she said, the majority of spread right now is through um, community that we just simply cannot trace. And we know how much we can allow that can still be traced through contact tracing uh, and if you have the app that can also be useful so what you do is you sort of get a feel for what that number would be in terms of the amount of uh, spread that you would see and then you essentially subtract from what we're currently seeing to get to that 25 percent now do you remember when bonnie and dr henry was uh, presenting these um, these graphs of uh, what it's like if we have 50 percent mm-hmm. of physical distancing uh 75 percent 60 percent of normal Yes. And, and, and we saw that if it was 60 to 75% of normal, we would start to have increases. But if it went to 80% of normal, then we'd go right into wildfire again. Well, it's the same idea. It's just that what Dr. Tam is doing is instead saying, instead of saying we can get down to 60% of normal, she's saying we need to reduce by 25%. It's just it's sort of a different way of saying the same thing. I guess it's a, it's an interesting one, too, in that we don't often think of our social interactions by percentages and then trying to figure out exactly what 25% or what 65% looks like. It, it doesn't translate automatically to, oh, okay, I can see these people, I can do this activity. I know, and, and, and it's just it's frustrating sometimes because when you think of it from a maths perspective, yeah, it makes perfect sense, and it does for me. Here's the thing. Um, most of us are not mathematics professors, and, and we definitely don't know epidemiology inside and out. So what I would say is that when it comes to how you're going to look about uh, your contacts, um, you can probably sort of number the, the, the people that you see on a day-to-day basis, and, and that should give you an idea. And most people are going to have somewhere between, I'd say, 9, 10 to maybe 15 contacts that they have on a daily basis, going to schools, going to work, et cetera, et cetera. Um, as we already heard from Dr. Henry, she wants us to have that safe six, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think from that perspective, what we really should be thinking about is less about 25% and less about numbers and everything, and just stick to that safe six that we heard earlier. And that is, you know, if you have 
uh, that that bubble that you that you know is safe. Then you have that six outside of your bubble. That's probably going to get you into the number of contacts that you would need in order to achieve that quote unquote 25% reduction that Dr. Tam was talking about. So I think what's happening in BC is a much better approach than trying to sort of play the mathematics. Uh, it's interesting when we talk about the safe six as well, because I had people questioning or asking, does that mean six people at a time? So no, no, it's the same people. You can't swap out your safe six. I know. And that's one of the questions I keep getting asked is like, well, what if we don't like this person anymore? I'm like, you're not Sheldon Cooper. You can't just decide that. No, you don't want to be with Raj anymore. You're going to go with Stuart. You have to stick with the same people. <laughs> but it just doesn't seem to work out that way. People always want to be switching back and forth. I mean, we get that. That promiscuity in your friends is something we're normally used to doing. But in this particular case, you kind of have to be stuck with the same six. Uh, you mentioned the COVID app, and that's been uh, a bit of an issue uh, here as well. And Dr. Henry saying BC wasn't going to really sign on or go all in on that because mm-hmm. she found it was, if it's only telling you in the past 14 days and it's not pinpointing it, uh, her concern that it could lead to more confusion and wouldn't actually be helpful. Uh, I know the Prime Minister today came out saying that they were making some changes and it would be more specific. Do you think that will help? Yes. And the other thing you have to realize is that the testing that's currently going on in BC is very focused testing so that the data that they get is going to be very easily used in models so that we get the easiest to understand information possible. When you have an app such as the COVID app, the whole idea is that if you have been in a situation where it's ringing you and saying you've been in contact or in close contact with someone who has uh, COVID or has been you know, shown to be positive for COVID, that means that you really should go and get a test, but you may not have symptoms. You may not fit within the parameters. And I think that's one of the big problems that we have at the moment is that we don't have that widespread testing that allows us to use the app effectively. And so you're going to have, unfortunately, um, a gap in between what the app is doing and what, you, what, what the testing is doing. Now, when we get to a point where, say, um, you know, the current uh, BCCDC saliva test is all of a sudden usable everywhere, or we have, you know, along the same lines as a pregnancy test, except we're using saliva instead of urine, then maybe the app would be incredibly effective. But as it stands right now, the testing is just not there to be able to support what the app would do. Right, because what's the point then? If you have the app and it's, it's telling you that you were potentially exposed, if you can't do anything to follow up on that, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of reason to that. Oh, yeah. And I mean, this type of confusion is unfortunately happening everywhere. I've been told by people that, um, you know, they were they, they heard that some person at their workplace or at the school may have become positive, but they can't go and get a test themselves because they're not showing any symptoms. I mean, that puts a lot of pressure on someone when you think about it. So we really need to be thinking about um, not just the mathematics of it, but we also have to think about the psychology of it so that we're making sure people are not panicking as a result of the fact that they've been told something that may, may or may not have any implications for their health. And I've also heard stories, I'm sure you have too, of people then also faking symptoms and going and saying, yes, I do have this and getting the test, which I think opens you up also, because if you're, if you're actually showing symptoms and you go get a test, aren't you supposed to isolate or kind of keep yourself in isolation while you're waiting for the results? Yeah. And as much as people might want to imitate Ferris Bueller, don't, please. <laughs> because at the end of the day, getting a test means that you are going to have to put yourself in some kind of isolation afterwards. Um, 
I had to get a test because of an indirect association with the COVID virus from uh, a few months ago. And I essentially had to stay in isolation, not be able to uh, go out to go get food, go and, you know, take, get takeout or anything like that until I got the test result back. Now, of course, it was going to be negative. But, I, but I, I still had to follow through with those rules. So the minute that you start looking at um, going to get yourself tested for whatever reasons, you have to realize until you get that test result back, you're putting yourself back in that isolation. Uh, there was uh, unfortunately another death in BC and it was highlighted at the news conference yesterday that mm-hmm. this was an 80-year-old person who had been at a very small house party and unfortunately somebody had COVID and it spread to, I think it was most of the people that were at this party. And yeah. still, I, I think that one resonates with people because we've had those small parties and we've been doing them and and thinking that we're being careful, but it does show how easily this virus can can spread. Yeah, and this is one of those really important um, concerns that I think everybody should have, and that is none of us have immunity to this virus. Um, And so as a result of that, it's going to affect us worse than any other virus that we know. So common cold, influenza, yeah, they can be bad, but COVID is going to hit us harder simply because we don't have that immunity. And if you start talking with people or, or being around people whose immunity is going to be weaker, whether they're on immunosuppressive drugs, whether they have some kind of chronic condition, or they're elderly, because unfortunately the elderly people um, have uh, you know, a less functional immune system, then you have to be careful. So if you are going outside of your safe six for whatever reasons, please, please understand that if you all of a sudden come into contact with someone who doesn't have that immunity, there is going to be a risk. And we've always talked about this day in and day out uh, about the idea of not harming the people we love with other viruses. With respect to COVID, it's even more important because that immunity just is not there. All right, Jason, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much and have a safe Halloween weekend. Thank you very much. And uh, trick or treating should be lots of fun. Well, we have talked a lot about the airline industry and how the pandemic has been devastating for airlines trying to make ends meet and trying to do so in a safe manner. But certainly that's not the only transportation industry that has been hurt because of this pandemic. The motor coach industry in BC is also seeing huge revenue losses and is asking for help. John Wilson is the president of Wilson's Transportation and joins me on the line now. John, thanks so much for being with us. Well, thanks for having me, Joe. Appreciate it. How bad are things? Oh, pretty bad. Yeah, the uh, the motor coach industry has been devastated uh, since March. Um, uh, generally down right across the board in British Columbia, around 95%, and uh, upwards uh, in the 90% uh, factor right across North America. And is that because of the uh, because it was so closely tied to tourism, or is it also domestically people just aren't using motor coaches? Yeah, it's a combination. I mean, if there's if there's something that you could devise to to bring the motor coach industry to a proverbial halt, it would be a pandemic. Everything that's affected by a pandemic uh, with group. Um, group gatherings, if you will, uh, being taken away is uh, in turn um, affects the motor coach industry. You know, sports teams, community groups, um, they rely on the motor coach industry and and uh, and uh, certainly tourism. Tourism is a big part of it as well. But just uh, general travel, um, intercity travel has affected it. 
uh, and of course, large-scale events like um, you know the, the Olympics and 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 things in the past, they rely heavily on um, the motor coach industry. And as we know, all the large-scale events have been grounded to a halt, whether they're conventions or sporting events or uh, of any nature, have uh, not happened. So it's been a very very hard eight months, and the motor coach industry is has uh, taken a brunt of it. And are we talking about uh, companies as well? And I'm not sure if yours would be included in this, but when we saw Greyhound pull out of servicing a lot of parts of the province, uh, are the companies now that are really feeling the hit, are they um, the ones that came forward and kind of filled in those gaps? Uh, yes, some of them. Uh, we, we've filled in some of that intercity uh, uh, model of work as well. Um, we operate uh, Vancouver Island, all over Vancouver Island. We have uh, intercity uh, connections and uh, also Vancouver to Victoria, Vancouver to Whistler and into the Kelowna-Kamloops region as well. But yeah, those those uh, the intercity buses have been affected as well. Uh, this group is made up of uh, some intercity, but largely charter market as well. And the charter market uh, has been hit extraordinary, extraordinary compared to uh, intercity. Intercity is we're still able to operate it. They're still down about 85 to 90 percent. But the charter market, um, for, you know, some companies uh, in the Greater Vancouver area have uh, done eight charters since uh, uh, since this has started in in eight months. So it's uh, with the uh, infrastructure that's involved to operating a, a motor coach industry. The the motor coaches alone are uh, six hundred thousand um, dollars, and uh, the the requirements of uh, you know, most of us have uh, upwards of, you know, over 30 coaches per company. Um, there's 12 uh, companies that have joined together to form this BC Motor Coach Coalition and covering a large geographic area of Brit- uh, British Columbia and a large amount of the, the motor coaches available to, to British Columbia. And uh, we feel that uh, we've kind of been under o- overlooked, if you will, by the, uh, the government entities, uh, both federally and provincially, as far as uh, any funding opportunities. Uh, so I was going to ask that with the, the programs that we saw, be them provincial or federal, did, did these companies uh, um, qualify for those or was there any help so far? Uh, not really. There's been some help, help, as you know, with the wage subsidy, but wage subsidy is, is great when your company's operating. But when your company is basically coming to a screeching halt, it doesn't really help things much. Um, and most of the other subsidies that are in play are, are much too small for companies of these size. And uh, with the uh, the um, financial requirements to uh, on a monthly basis to upkeep and 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 have a fleet like this both on the road uh, financially to your the financial institutions, but also to the insurance companies and such. Um, you know the, uh, the the require the needs, if you will, the financial needs are much greater than what's been put out to date uh, for the tourism industry, which is uh, you know it's a wide range of an industry, nineteen thousand um, businesses right across the board, and and some the the forty thousand uh, dollar provincial grant is is a fantastic. Uh, a thing, and I'm I'm not uh, saying it's not a a good good um, f- step forward for the provincial government, but uh, it's there are some companies like ours, and and particularly most of the motor coach industry that require much more than those that that to survive to to through this dark winter fall and winter period to to get to what we hope will be a, will be a bright spring and summer in 2021. And so when you say that you feel like you've been overlooked, what would you need at this point to get through the this winter and to maintain operations? 
Well, we're hoping for uh, for some grants, some grants or uh, guaranteed uh, backed um, low interest or no interest loans from the from the provincial or federal government. That's what um, the 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 industry is looking for, similar to what. The car industry, the more automobile making industry back in Ontario got back in the day, and and what the airline industry is looking to get down south uh, in the United States, the airline industry's got 10 billion in backing to date. To the rail uh, industry's got two billion, and the motor coach industry has nothing to date. So it's it's not just in British Columbia it's being overlooked. It's Canada and North America in general that. Uh, uh, unfortunately, um, we think the motor coach industry is a vital uh, part of uh, not only tourism, but our, our uh, communities and the society in general. And uh, for us to uh, start our recovery from uh, COVID-19 and, uh, and brighter days ahead in 2021, the, the industry has to be strong and these uh, companies have to be ready to roll uh, to ensure that uh, when tourism does come back uh, and the borders are opened and, and uh, we're able to uh, to hit the ground running, so to speak. And do you think it will come back uh, interprovincially in that people will be able to safely travel by motor coach and, and to continue on exploring BC or even Canada uh, for that matter? Is that where you see things kind of coming back first? Yeah, we believe that. Yeah, we think that uh, you know motor coaches, for instance, are, are considered uh, very green and safe uh, prior to COVID, and uh, studies have shown that people would uh, uh, feel safe getting on a motor coach and and uh, post COVID as well. So we we think it's going to be a um, uh, something that comes back uh, fairly quickly, and uh, all the all the companies have uh, you know abided by the work safe and uh, the health regulations as far as uh, you know uh, masks and cleaning regulations and things like that. And uh, we believe uh, that uh, people um, will come back when they're able, and uh, you know uh, events and uh, and uh, the borders are opened up to to come to. All right. So, well, we will uh, stay tuned and hope that some aid is on the way. John, thanks so much for joining us to talk about this. Well, thank you very much for having me. Well, yesterday when we were talking about the news conference in Squamish where investigators had identified a homicide victim from 2017, we found out that his name is actually Davis Wolfgang Hawk, but we didn't learn much else. I keep saying this a lot, but there's a lot of question marks. It is truly a mystery. It is truly a, a case of whodunit. It is a, it is a case that's, that we're aggressively pursuing. That was IHIT spokesperson Sergeant Frank Jang speaking yesterday. A quick Google search of that name, though, brings out some details that appear to be right out of a movie. The fact that Davis Wolfgang Hawk was somebody by a different name altogether. He was also a known neo-Nazi in the United States and an email spammer. There was a book written about him called Spam Kings. That book written by Brian McWilliams, who's also a former investigative journalist. And Brian McWilliams joins me on the line to talk more about this now. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Jill. Thanks for having me. What was your response when you learned that police in Squamish, B.C. had identified this homicide victim as Davis Wolfgang Hawk? Well, it's a kind of a sad ending to this story of this guy's life. I mean, it, he he lived on the edge, you know, all the time. And I, I guess in some ways I'm not surprised that he came to that kind of a violent end. 
Uh, take us back a bit, if you can, and talk about how you first got involved. What led you to write the book Spam Kings? Well, I, at the time, was uh, a journalist specializing in Internet crime. Um, but I'm also, you know, I was a, a heavy Internet user, and I kept getting a lot of spams from this one outfit that was trying to sell um, some pills online, and the pills were supposed to make you um, better endowed, shall we say. And uh, I just did a little bit of tracking to try to find out where this company was, and it turned out it was a local company here. I live, you know, in the Boston area, and just through some sleuthing, I figured out that the guy who ran this company, the guy who was behind sending all these junk emails to me and lots of other Internet users, was actually this guy who had organized a neo-Nazi march on Washington back in 1999. And was he known as Davis Wolfgang Hawk at that point? When I found him, he wasn't using that name. That was his neo-Nazi name. He was born Andrew Britt Greenbaum. Uh, His father was Jewish. Um, He lived in a suburban home uh, in in uh, out just outside of Boston, um, and eventually changed his name. He became a neo-Nazi and changed his name to Davis Wolfgang Hawk. Um, used that name for a number of years, um, which you know was his legal name. But he never used that name as part of his spamming operation, or even with the people that he met in the years after that. He was constantly changing his name, and I understand that. When he was living out there in BC, he was going by the name Jesse James. So, um, just a chameleon of a guy, you know, always morphing into something else. Uh, from what I understand, too, he he used to boast about how much money he made as being an email spammer. Uh, but he was also at the head, or at the the, the at the head of a, a twelve point eight million dollar U.S. lawsuit. What happened there? Well, this was back in around 2003, and it's the, the United States passed its first law that, that outlawed sending junk email. And at the time, the biggest Internet service provider was America Online, and, and America Online used this new law to sue some of the most egregious spammers. And, and this guy was one of them. So they took him to court uh, he never showed up, neither did his partner. And so they got a default judgment, as you mentioned, for 12 something million dollars. Um, and at, that was the point at which um, I had my contacts with with Davis Hawk, um, had a couple of telephone interviews with him. He wouldn't meet me in person, but he was willing to talk by phone. And he was quite open about what he was what he was up to. Um, at times he would turn evasive. He didn't want to tell me what his plans were. Um, relative to the lawsuit or going forward into the future, although he hinted that he might be heading to Belize. um, And now there seems to be some indication that may be what he did after that. And when you talked to him, how many times did you talk to him? I think it was uh, maybe three or four times. Spoke to him directly, spoke to his mother on a number of occasions. She still lived out here in the Boston area. Uh, spoke to many of his associates. They were more open to to kind of explaining how the spam business worked than he was. Um, so I had, had a number of conversations with those folks and talked to people who were his opponents. There's 
a group of people on the internet who's they're sort of anti-spam vigilantes and and they spend a lot of their time trying to drive these spammers underground if not put them out of business altogether uh, he sounds uh, like a, a bit of a troubled individual, uh, perhaps to say yeah. the least. Uh, was that the last thing that people heard from him as after this, uh, when when this trouble happened uh, with the lawsuit? Did he kind of disappear then? Uh, yeah, he did. Um, you know, even some of his friends lost lost track of him. He had a a close girlfriend at the time who I guess he broke up with around then. Um, he was always a guy who was into the outdoors. He spent a lot of time out here in the New England area, hiking in the woods of New Hampshire. Um, and so I think, you know, it was easy for him to go off the grid and to, to kind of disappear. I understand that he actually, at some point um, after going underground, actually launched a website and tried to sort of put himself forward as a guy who could um, – you know, who was an expert in sort of clean living, vegan eating and and living off the grid. Again, just reinventing himself yet again with a different name and, and you know, a different con, really. I mean, the, the guy ultimately was a con man. Uh, any surprise to you then that he was living apparently in Squamish, B.C., which is about an hour's drive out of Vancouver, uh, a pretty pretty small town. Uh, he was an avid climber, apparently, according to locals, and going by that alias? It does seem to kind of fit with what he would do. You know, again, he, he liked uh, being outdoors. He liked, um, you know, mixing with that kind of people. The other thing that was interesting about this guy, though, was he was a a really um, dedicated chess player. He was he was quite intelligent, and and a lot of the people that he made early on in his junk email career were fellow chess masters, and he would kind of train them in the business of spam and use them as his sort of spamming accomplices. I think he was you know he gravitated toward people who were who were very intelligent, and I think. He thought of himself as being more intelligent than everybody else in the world, including the police. And I think he thought he could always stay one step ahead of of the authorities. And police here, investigators here said yesterday that one of the questions they still have is they don't know when he came into Canada or how he came into Canada, whether he actually came in at a border crossing or if he snuck into the country and they didn't know how long he had been here, which sounds like it kind of makes sense with what you're saying and what I've read about the fact that he kind of slipped into Belize and and who knows when he left there or if he left there and then came to Canada. Yeah, I mean, this was a guy. It's hard to hard to know really how much money he had, um, but he did live simply. You know, for a guy who who potentially was a millionaire from this junk email business, um, the story that his associates told me was that he was very fond of like burying his his money uh, in the ground. I mean, he would literally dig holes and 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 bury money in um, little sealed boxes in the woods of New Hampshire. So, you know, maybe he was doing that as well in BC. Maybe he was broke at that point. The last time I talked to him, he claimed he had no money. Um, But I think that was because he wanted America Online to to leave him alone and not try to pursue that 12.8 million. Well, and that's even one of the bizarre points of the story too was was the 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 rumors that he had buried gold and platinum on the 
family property. Mm-hmm. And, and there was some talk at one point, wasn't there, that AOL was going to go dig it up, but they never did. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, that uh, that was a, a very funny turn of the story. I mean, I, I just can't imagine him. Uh, he, he wasn't real close to his family. I think he, he paid occasional visits to his mother, um, talked on the phone. But I, I think he's a little too savvy to, to use his parents' you know, suburban yard to bury his, his wealth. I think he would probably, you know, seek out better places than that. So I think AOL probably realized that as well and, and nixed the idea. Uh, the way he was killed, and again, police are saying they, they, they know, obviously, that this is a homicide, but they don't really have any other details. I mean, to be shot and found in a burning vehicle, in B.C. at least, it's kind of all of the marks of a gang-style hit. Does, does it surprise you that, 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 that it was such a violent way that whoever did this to him did this? It does, you know, especially that, as you say, that it, it looks like, you know, like a drug related kind of crime. And I, I when I knew him, there was no indication that he was involved in drugs or you know, as a user or as a dealer. Um, I don't know if that changed. I don't know if he, you know, that the spamming business became difficult. The online crime business became difficult. And so he, you know, had to resort to some other way to make some money. I don't know. Uh, it, it, that doesn't really seem to fit the M.O., though, that that I have for this guy. It doesn't it doesn't seem right somehow. And uh, you mentioned, too, that you've spoken with his family in the past. And yesterday, uh, investigators here said they, too, had told the family members that they would identified him as the as the victim in Squamish, uh, making a, a point saying up until they were told this, they he didn't think that the family even knew where Squamish was. Do you get the sense, though, that this will at least bring some closure to, to this family who hadn't seen this individual for years? Yeah, I mean, really sad closure. I know that his mother um, was really fond of him. You know, she she called him by his middle name. She called him Brit. Um, she uh, seemed to really want to have a much more normal relationship with her, her only son, but um, was hurt because this guy basically disappeared from her for, you know, the better part of 10 or 15 years, had had no contact with her as far as I know. So, you know, I guess it's closure, but it, it's certainly got to be sad news for them. Well, Brian, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much. Uh, my guess is there might be some uh, renewed interest in the book as people are hearing this story and trying to figure out what happened in this case. And I'm sure police will be looking for people who uh, had any uh, dealings with him as well. Thank you so much for joining us to talk more about this. You're very welcome. Thank you. Well, once again, this weekend, we will fall back. The clocks will change. And as every time the clocks move, there is the ongoing debate. Should we continue doing this? What are the benefits of changing our clocks twice a year? Would we be better off if we picked a time and stuck to it? Well, my next guest is Michael Antil. Ansel, sorry, the professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Calgary, also vice president of the Canadian Society for Chronobiology. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Uh, what are your thoughts on the fact that we are still changing the clocks twice a year? Um, well, there's some evidence that we've seen for decades now um, that 
this is a bad practice, particularly in the spring. So this this time change we're getting this weekend, we actually get an extra hour of sleep and, and uh, we'll actually have a better morning on Monday. But uh, um, in the spring, there's more accidents after we do the time change, more accidents on the job, on the road, um, more heart attacks, more stroke. So that's a, it's a really bad week when we spring forward. And so we've been arguing for years that we should abandon that pro- uh, that practice. And when you talk about the the, the more accidents, uh, heart problems and issues, what is it that's actually happening to our bodies that that in some cases there is such a negative response? Well, there's there's two things. And and, uh, the main one that people used to think it uh, was the cause was that we lost an hour of sleep in the spring. Uh, We we set our clocks forward, so we we lose an hour of sleep. And um, it's that, that loss of hour of sleep that makes us a little more groggy on Monday morning. But it's actually more insidious than that because our bodies um, and the timing of all of our behavior is governed by a clock in our brain. And that clock tells us when to get up. And when we spring forward, our clock in the brain doesn't know that. It doesn't follow our watches or the clock on the wall. And so you're forcing your body to get up an hour before it wants to be. And then when we're living on daylight saving time, we're actually living in a permanent kind of one hour jet lag situation and the body actually never adapts so this weekend when our clocks fall back we're actually going to be moving back to natural time and our our body clocks are going to be very happy with that i've often wondered about that because people talk about how screwed up they feel especially as you mentioned in the spring when we lose that hour Uh, but for people who work shift work and have different times that don't go to bed at the same time and don't get up at the same time are they better able to to deal with this or does it does it meddle with everybody's internal clock the same way oh i think uh, they're probably even more affected uh, especially the shift workers because if they're working at night they're not going to be able to get those uh the the light time cue that uh, our body needs so uh, i think they're just as affected by us maybe they're a little bit more used to working when they're tired but uh, it's still not a good situation Uh, there has been talk of not changing the clocks anymore it kind of was put on the back burner i think the pandemic helped to do that as well right Uh, what do you think though what would the benefit be or would we see then benefits if we chose this time and stuck to it so, um, yeah, a lot of governments have been doing this. I know BC had sort of voted to do this once all the Pacific states go on board. Uh, and Alberta here is also thinking about it. But everybody seems to be thinking of permanent daylight time. And uh, the evidence that uh, people like me are, are seeing is actually a permanent standard time would be better. Um, we need the, the morning light. Uh, and in the winter, there's not a lot of light that we get in Canada anyways. And it's that morning light that's so critical for our bodies to um, help set our circadian clocks and also help us get to sleep on time. So if we have later uh, sunrises and later sunsets, the evidence is that we have uh, less sleep. And then that actually leads to higher rates of diabetes and heart disease and cancer. So uh, we're actually arguing that it should be standard time, which will give us more sleep and better health. It was interesting, too, because there, that's the thing in the summertime when you often see people posting photos of the sunsets and talking about how great it is that it's 930 at night and it's still light out. <laughs> but that, that's actually not that good for us. Yeah, most parents with young kids would say the opposite. Trying to get a kid to go to sleep when it's still bright outside is really, really hard. (laughs) Very, very true. Um, What what else does it do as far as as the things that we don't even realize that 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 it's having an impact in that you might be tired or 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 that that kind of inner clock? How how much is it affected that, that we don't even know? Well, um, so I was talking about health, but just in terms of performance, if you're trying to wake up before your body clock wants you to get up, 
then what we've seen is, is people have a hard time doing that, and there's a lot more absenteeism, so they show up late for work or late for class. And the kids do less well in school, so there's lots of evidence that the later schools start uh, relative to sunrise, um, the better the students do. And so if we move to permanent daylight time in the winter uh, when the sun doesn't rise until, you know, maybe after their first period of class, it's um, going to be really hard for them. Does it matter if you're somebody, though, that gets up for sunrise or sleeps through it? Because in the summertime, when it is so early, I know a lot of people, by the time you get up, the sun's already well into the sky. Yeah, so that's true. And um, most people tend to be a little more night owlish. So people's clocks run a little slow. But there are those of us who who's, uh, have clocks that run a, a little fast and get up a little bit early every day. Um, and they're, they're going to see lots of light. The light they need is, is the evening light. Uh, and um, there's still lots of that. It's the problem of if you're uh, at work um, uh, at your desk before the sun even gets up, then you're really missing that, that natural light that you need. Are there ways to get it from lamps that are, are those light lamps that you stare at? Or are there ways that if we're not getting it from nature that we can kind of compensate for it? Yeah, so they have these these sad lamps, uh, they call them, and um, and they, they're really bright. Um, so uh, and they're a lot brighter than your normal lights that you would have in your house or in the office. Um, and they get close to what you might see when you're outside. Um, but uh, going outside is sort of the easiest one, seeing the sun. It's it's free. <laughs> it's right out there. So uh, and and it's going to be bright enough for sure. But yeah, the so the sad lamps. It's it's a it's a good band aid solution, but that's all it is. Uh, how concerned are you then that uh, th- that there is so much focus on shifting to a permanent daylight time? Then, well, I'm I'm really worried about it. We've tried it a few times. Um, the U.S. tried this uh, back in the 70s. Uh, Russia tried it back in 2012. Um, I know in Alberta, uh, they did it during the Second World War. They had permanent daylight time. But in every case, it's been abandoned. Um, that first experience with the winter um, and these really late late uh, dawns, um, people just don't really know how bad it is. Nobody's really experienced this. Um, we've all experienced, um, you know, standard time in the winter, and we all have the daylight time uh, in in, uh, in the summer, and that's great. But the problem is the winter, and if we have those really late dawns, it's going to be hard. Now, in Vancouver, where you're very close to the, the 49th parallel, it's not so bad, but people up in Prince George in BC are going to have a really hard time. The further north you, you go, the harder this is going to be to deal with. Uh, you kind of went to my next question, uh, wondering where does it matter where you are in the world as far as then the impact? Yeah, so in fact, um, uh, Vancouver lies right in the middle of your time zone. So when you're on standard time, you actually have um, high noon um, at at, uh, at noontime. Uh, in Alberta, we're a little bit west of where we should be. But then as, as you go north, uh, these dawns are going to get really late and the dusk get, get really early. And so it's really hard to find that, that daylight in the, uh, the wintertime. All right. Uh, interesting uh, stuff. And the conversation I know is going to continue and will until I think maybe some decision uh, has been made on this. Uh, Professor, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Uh, and have a great Thanks weekend. Thanks for having me. Well, remember back in March when things started locking down and then things got even more serious, a lot of people had a lot of goals. Uh, Get in shape, write a novel, so many things. Uh, Fair to say not everybody completed those goals. Not so for a grade five student in Burnaby, though. Kiana Sosa decided she was going to become a published author and use this time when her school was closed to sit down and write a children's book. Now, we had hoped to bring Kiana Sosa on the program, but while she is very good at writing and promoting her work, she gets a little shy when doing interviews and when 
when speaking live. So instead, she recorded some of her thoughts for us and wanting, wanted to let us know exactly why she did this and how this all came about. I wrote Ellie and Lou at school before spring break. My teacher encouraged me to submit the story to the school district's words writing contest, which publishes the best in student writing each year. My entry was selected as one of the winners. I was surprised at first because I didn't feel confident about it, but I was super happy and excited. Unfortunately, the ceremony got canceled because of COVID. I was really disappointed because that was one of the things I was most looking forward to. So, when my teacher asked us to work on a passion project during the at-home learning after spring break, I had the idea of turning my disappointment into something good. I decided to publish a book as my passion project. And with that, off I went on a wild adventure trying to figure out how to make it happen. At first, I felt very overwhelmed by everything that needed to be done in a short time. But I focused on my main goal and went one step at a time, just walk, working on one small part. I learned that it's important to ask for help when needed and that you don't need to know everything before doing something. I'm very glad that I didn't wait until I had everything figured out or I would have waited a long time. I'm very proud of how the book turned out and everything I learned. It's an experience I will never forget. So that is Grade 5 student Kiana Sosa talking about writing her book, Ellie and Lou, The Meaning of Friendship. But it has so far sold, I think, more than 300 paperback copies. And it's around the 2000 ebook download number. So while Kiana was a bit too shy, didn't want to do an interview live on the radio, her mother, Caroline, did agree to speak and talk a bit about how proud she is of her daughter. So she wrote this story at school um, before a spring break. Uh, the teacher always like uh, have like flex time where they can just write and read and and Kenna wrote this story there. And then the teacher liked it and she said, Oh, what about you submit this story to the Burnaby writing contest? And she did. And she won a spot, but then there's supposed to be a ceremony, and the ceremony was canceled because of COVID. And then after that, when the after spring break, just um, close to the end of the school year, the teacher said, "What about we do like a passion project where everybody decide what to work on?" And uh, Kiana said, "Oh, what about if I publish my book?" <laughs> I want to I want to turn the disappointing into something good, and then I say, "Oh, okay." <laughs> I didn't know she really mean to publish, uh, you know, like to sell the book. Right. And you might have even thought, okay, if you want to publish the book, we can make one copy and and make it look like you you might order a a photo book or something like that. Uh, But from what I understand, she's already sold hundreds of copies of this book. Oh, yes. Yes. Sold like more than 300 books, paperback, and like thousands of downloads on ebooks. 
Wow, that's that's so amazing that it went from this idea, a passion project at home uh, when the schools closed, uh, to, to something so big. Uh, did you go down the self-publishing route, or how did you actually publish the book? Yeah, self-publish. Because we have, like, um, this week or something like that, uh, because it was a project, school project, right? She had to do a presentation at the end of the school, so we didn't have much time. <laughs> And I understand that Kiana has been asked now and has spoken uh, via Zoom. She's been talking to other classes and, and places uh, if I, uh, places in the States. And and sounds like she's become quite an inspiration for other students. Oh, yes. We receive emails and messages all the time. That's so many kids. Like, now I want to write a book, too. <laughs> <laughs> and teachers love this story because it's like um, that's a way for them to... The kids can relate to the book better because they see. We have uh, the last page of the book is a picture of her, and they can see it was another child that wrote the book. Hmm. What is the story uh, of Ellie and Lou, The Meaning of Friendship? What is the story about? So the two elephants, mommy and, and daughter, they are in trouble. They need help. Um, they're hungry, and there is no food around. So the story is about how the whole community comes together to help. And they all get better at the end because everybody was kind to each other and, and they become good friends. Ellie and Lou being elephants, is there, was there a certain reason why Kiana chose elephants for, for the characters in the book? She just loves elephants. <laughs> all animals. She's an animal lover, but she loves elephants. And uh, she knows a lot about them and... She said, like, elephants are kind, and they have, like, emotions, like humans. How has it been for Kiana as far as getting all of this attention and, and being kind of put in the spotlight like, uh, like this? She's getting used to it. <laughs> She's, uh, uh, yeah, like, a bit of a quiet, uh, but she's getting used to it. Like, the readings, she loves to do the readings because that's her thing. Uh, so, so far, she has booked a few readings uh, in the States, and she loved that. Uh, the interview's a little bit hard for her, but yeah. <laughs> That's understandable. Um, I'll, I'll let you go, but I did want to ask, uh, does she have a sequel coming, or is she writing any more books? There is one coming out, like, pretty soon, uh, first week of November. It's called Ellie and Lou, the Gardeners of the Jungle. Mm. All yeah. right. Well, we will, we'll leave it there and maybe we can talk to you, uh, you and Kiana again when the next book comes out. I'm, I'm sure uh, given the popularity of the first one, uh, there'll be a ton of people waiting to, to read that. Uh, Caroline, thank you so much and best of luck to Kiana in the second book and her writing career. Thanks so much and we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. <laughs> Bye-bye.